Marketing of the thing can't make up for the thing. The best way to market a product is to create a product worth buying. On today's episode, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with my longtime friend and colleague, David Schneider. He spent years working with Chef Michael White at the Alta Morea Group and is now the director of operations for Portali Restaurant here in New York City. We spend a good deal of this conversation talking about the relationship between operations and marketing. He is one of the smartest guys I know and also perhaps the nicest. I hope you enjoy this week's interview with David Schneider. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. My goal is to take complicated marketing concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. For me, it's all about helping you think differently about your business and giving you the tools you need to implement this stuff right away. If you've been listening for a while, you know what I always love to say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Today's episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a website, e-commerce, and marketing platform for restaurants. Over 6,000 restaurants worldwide rely on Bento Box to drive high margin revenue and connect with guests through their websites. These days, of course, you need a stylish website, but you also need one that can help drive revenue. Bento Box understands that because they are a platform created exclusively for restaurants. I've worked on the platform. I love to recommend this platform. Please get started by visiting getbento.com slash restaurant strategy. Listeners of this show will receive 50% off their setup fees. Again, that's G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O dot com slash restaurant strategy. Also, just a reminder, the Restaurant Strategy is now on Patreon. Our community is growing. There are four different tiers of membership. Each one has a bunch of perks included, but... Each level grants you access to our new private podcast. It's called The Daily Special. New episodes drop every weekday, short snackable content Monday through Friday. Please visit patreon.com slash restaurant strategy. So my guest today is David Schneider. Uh, aside from being a good friend, a longtime colleague of mine, he is the director of operations at Portali Restaurant here in New York City. Thrilled to have him on the show. David, welcome. Hello, Chip. Thank you. Excited to be on the show today and a big fan. So I'll uh, try not to destroy uh, what you've created so far. I hope you don't destroy the podcast. I'm I'm pretty sure you won't. Um, We have the great fortune of being together. I haven't seen uh, David in a very, very long time. Uh, but we are here in his apartment. Uh, it is a beautiful day in New York City. Uh, it is nice to have some human contact, to be out of my apartment. Uh, and so I'm glad to be with you uh, today. So Portale, uh, it's owned uh, by Chef Alfred Portale, um, who I had the pleasure of working with uh, for years at Gotham, uh, which is was an institution in New York City uh, for a long time. I worked there for eight years. I got to know uh, Chef really well. Um, you now work uh, with him, under him. Um, I want to talk... I want to talk about that restaurant, the experience of opening that restaurant and running that restaurant, because you opened in 2019 in the fall, kind of uh, opened to a lot of attention, got rave reviews, were really off to a great start. 
Then the pandemic hit and shut you guys down. You guys did what every other restaurant did. You pivoted and and you had to furlough people and bring them back and then furlough people and all that. I want to get to all of that, but I want to I want to build up to it. I don't want to just dive right into that. Um, I want to go back a little bit and give. Um, and give people context because you've been doing this for a long time. Um, you and I first worked together 10 years ago, opening a restaurant, I guess a little bit over 10 years ago. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, we both left there, went our own ways. You worked for, uh, Altamaria, worked with uh, chef Michael White at a bunch of his different restaurants all around the city, uh, before landing at Portale. Um, but I want to go back even further from that. Okay. When did you first get interested in food and the second piece to that is that when did you realize that this could be a career path or that you wanted it to be a career path for you? So I, I grew up in a family of foodies. Um, we were either eating out or cooking at home, but um, food was always a, a focal point. Um, it brought us together. Uh, you know, one of those families where you're having one meal, planning the next one. You would book a trip and it was all based on restaurants rather than museums or you know the taking in the sites um, that was kind of like the construct of our of our family and um, food you know I, I have to credit my mom for her I'd say culinary genius on a home level uh, yeah. you know she, her passion she would spend countless hours in the kitchen cooking just like a basic meal for the family because that was what brought her joy it was a, a therapy of sorts uh, so, you know, whether it was cooking for the family at home on a more intimate level or finding any and all opportunities to, you know, like force my dad to bring people from the office over for a quarterly, you know, gathering of sorts. Um, you know, she, she wanted that opportunity to cook, to entertain, to host, uh, to extend hospitality. So that was an environment that I grew up in um, and found very nurturing. Uh, and I guess at a certain stage along the way, kind of felt natural. Um, to the point where, as I got older and was considering career paths uh, and ended up, you know, getting that first server gig, uh, it didn't seem too foreign to me. Of course, you know, you work in a restaurant for the first time, you need to learn the, the basics, understand, you know, the, the rules of the house. But in terms of, I guess, like hospitality instincts and, um, you know, what it means to actually like, care for the guests and care for your teammate, um, I, I felt like I was able to come to that uh, come to restaurants, come to this profession with a, you know, a modest understanding of, of what that entailed. So uh, I guess to, to answer your question, um, yeah, food has always been uh, an important part of my life, kind of played a pivotal role in things. Uh, and, you know, now that I'm a father of two, I'd say a lot of what my mom imparted in me, I kind of find myself being guilty of as far as the relationship I have with, with my children and wife. Um, when I have free time and I've had more of this pasture than I've ever had before uh, as a professional, um, I do find myself in the kitchen um, trying to create for my kids. Um, and it could be a simple meal that I decide to maybe complicate unnecessarily. David's Instagram feed uh, over the past year has been amazing because he basically makes some really fancy dinner every single night of the week and takes a picture of it. 
and suddenly whatever we're making at home pales in comparison to want to invite <laughs> ourselves over. It's actually, it's funny you said that because uh, we've kind of watched that That's over funny. the last year. We've seen all of your, your dinner pictures. Uh, if you, uh, if you can find David on uh, Instagram, it is worth seeing all of his creations. You're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So uh, you grew up, uh, food was, uh, was a key part of, uh, kind of your childhood, which is, I think common for a lot sure. of people. It's uncommon for me because okay. uh, food was not part of, of our growing up where I'm a child of the, uh, of the eighties. And so it was, you know, I don't want to say frozen food and TV dinners cause that's not true, but it was not, um, I, I didn't know food the way that I know now, the way I learned, uh, when I moved to the city, uh, throughout my twenties and thirties. Um, interestingly enough, now my parents have gotten much more into food and much more aware of, you know, uh, of what they, you know, what they buy, how, how it's prepared and, and all of that. Um, so food has become really central to, uh, to our lives. Um, but it wasn't when I was growing up. So I'm always fascinated. I always love, uh, when people have the opposite experience when, when, you know, when that was kind of a, a key construct, then, okay, then explain to me when, um, so you decide, okay, I, I, I'm good at this. I, I like this. I can, and, and how did you, how did you target that path forward into the industry? Yeah, so I uh, I moved to New York as a 20-year-old with a, a few semesters of college under my belt, having lived in Germany for a year prior. Um, my undergraduate studies initially were German and economics. Um, after a year in Germany, I was somewhat disinclined to go back to the university where I had started. My older sister had a year of uh, New York under her belt at that point in time and said, you know, come to New York, try it on for size. I think you'll like it. You'll You'll figure it out. So like any dumb little 20 year old moving in, moving to New York with really no, with no resume to speak of, um, I dabbled around in a lot of things. I tried real estate and was taken to the cleaners and was just, I didn't uh, realize that. That's oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was terrible at it and probably didn't have the right mentor, but, uh, you know, that was a, a three month, four month stretch where, you know, I, I gave it a shot and that was uh, a failed experience. Um, I took acting classes. I worked as a bartender at, you know, pick a dive bar on the Upper East Side. I had, a, I, had a, I had a stint there. And um, I would say during that first year, regardless of what I thought I was pursuing or supposed to be doing, I always was in the kitchen, creating and cooking and, and having fun. And it dawned on me, I guess, toward the end of that first year, if I were to find a reason to stay in New York, the restaurant world, perhaps going down that culinary path was as, as good a reason as any and might in fact be the, you know, my calling might be the, the right path to pursue. So I ended up going to the Institute of Culinary, culinary Education um, starting in my second year. Uh, I was working as a server at a high-end kind of caviar joint in Midtown by day and then in culinary school at night um, and did that for, I guess it was like a nine-month program. Um, getting that foundation, taking what I had kind of learned at home and taught myself to do during my free time and really establishing like a kind of classical training foundation. Yeah, for sure. Um, which was eye-opening and enlightening. Um, and ultimately that path, that structure, uh, the career counseling, if you will, uh, put me on a path to get that first externship. Um, I will call out this restaurant. It was a cute little restaurant on the Lower East Side. 71 Clinton Fresh Food, tiny little jewel box restaurant, 30 seats. I think it was like another six or eight seat, uh, eight seats at the bar. And there were like four of us in the kitchen. There was a porter and there were you know, three cooks, like chef and roast and yeah. you know, maybe four on uh, you know, certain nights, but small team and we were doing it all. And it was six day weeks, 14, 15 hour days. You're 
getting in there early or prepping out your station and then executing it and sit down at the bar for a couple whiskeys to you know kind of drink your salary because they weren't really paying you yep but i love them but that was just the dynamic (laughs) and uh and then you do it all again the next day um so i did that and i loved it and at the time was convinced you know i'm gonna do this for a little while Uh, again i had spent that one year in germany i had this like grand notion of going back to europe i'm gonna like spend a year in spain and italy and france and you know, I'm going to learn all these different languages and have this amazing skill set and come back stateside and figure it out, um, you know, put it all into play. It was uh, during my second year of cooking there that I came down with like a really bad case. So I, I have um, eczema and I had a really bad reaction, like the conditions, yeah. that workload just um, exacerbated an already bad situation to the point where um, I realized that was just not a, a career path that I could stay on. So I had to pivot. I had to figure out, you know, what what else can I do with my life? Um, I had always had an interest in film along with restaurants. So I I applied to five different schools, um, one with film in mind, the four others with essentially hospitality management. And I got into one uh, that the the one that had the the film program and decided to do that. Um, I was all in. I'm like, I'm I'm going the (laughs) film route. I'll figure it out. Um, And what I figured out uh, was that while in school, I encountered so many incredibly talented screenwriters and directors who were in their 50s living in shoebox apartments and you know they were passionate about it and, and kudos to them but i i had no, i didn't have the necessary confidence to pursue it i didn't think that my skill set was necessarily ever going to match theirs and if they couldn't do it why should i convince myself that i could um, I, I realized that pretty quickly and early on with film that my confidence level in that realm paled in comparison when it comes to food and, and restaurants. And, and without the confidence, um, you know, you need tremendous talent. And But that- I think that also has to do with self-awareness and prioritization. And this is the, the challenge with the way that we do things, I think, um, in this country, certainly, and maybe in much of the world or, or, you know, much of the Western hemisphere, which is that, you know, uh, kids have to choose what they want to do what do you want to be when you grow sure. up? You have to choose at a very young age, right? To to get into elite college programs, you got to decide by junior senior year. You got to apply to that one program and just do that. But they're on that se- path. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at seventeen or eighteen, though, how do you know what you you know what you're really going to like? And I think it's difficult often to understand um, the lifestyle of a certain career path. Yeah. You know, for for good or bad. So how could you possibly? decide before you see it, before you figure it out, before you live it a little bit. And um, certainly, you know, in entertainment, uh, it's that way. I think in uh, certainly restaurants, you know, where, where we find ourselves, it's the same thing, right? You might want to create food and, and, and be a chef, but that's not the, the reality of the day-to-day. The day-to-day is 14-hour days, 16-hour days, and you're spending more time, you know, costing food or doing schedules or payroll than you are actually, you know, developing a new menu and, and, and honing that. Um yeah, I think it's interesting. So, okay, so you do that, film yeah. school, and you realize this is not what I want to pursue. And so you pivot back towards restaurants? Yeah, well, so, you know, I'm, I'm continuing to work as a server while in school. So I haven't lost complete touch with that this industry. Um, so it's, you know, it's tugging at me all, all the while. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, film, is this really my calling? I don't know. Restaurants, I've gone to culinary school. I've got front of the house experience. Perhaps, you know, maybe I decide to get on this management path. Perhaps I can um, parlay what I've done thus far into something bigger and, and, and find the 
a new path, the right path, one where, again, I, I feel more confident, which for me is, is kind of key with anything I do. Um, so I, after graduation, I decided, all right, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I do think that regardless of the path, and I'm just like convinced myself of this uh, being important, I'm like, Spanish is going to be important. <laughs> Yeah, I could you know, speak Spanish on the film set or, you know, it, it obviously is important in restaurants. Um, so I had taken some Spanish in college as well. And I was like, I'm going to go to Puerto Rico. And I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> so I go to Puerto Rico and I'm there for, I don't know, like seven months. I was planning to go for a year, but and it was great. But, you know, I, I think I'd been in New York at least 10 years at that point. And a little bit of the island time I was getting impatient. I just graduated. I didn't feel like I was being all that productive. Um, but I was in, in Puerto Rico. I was practicing my Spanish and working in restaurants. I was like a host at Ruth's Chris and I was doing some catering work. So again, kind of kept my foot in that world. Yeah. I also went to Puerto Rico, convinced myself at the time. I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll work in restaurants. Reggaeton is huge. I'll like get on set and like do some daddy Yankee uh, <laughs> videos. I, I didn't, I didn't do any uh, daddy Yankee videos, but, uh, but I did continue to work in, in restaurants. Um, so Long story short, I, I knew I wanted to move back to New York. I had read Danny Meyer's Setting the Table. I yeah. was like, you know what? I need to see if there's an opportunity to work for USHG. Um, so that was my first management gig. And I had a, a brilliant GM that took me under her wing. Um, she had been with the group for 15 years at that point, knew all the best practices, you know, spoke you know, perfectly fluent in all things Danny, USHG, as far as the standard, yeah. the culture. Um, so I worked at, you know, entry level restaurants in a management capacity, um, but really felt fortunate to, to, to get that, that proper management foundation. Yeah. Um, so I did that and really appreciated it, but it, again, it was more kind of cafe style and I knew I wanted to be in fine dining restaurants. Yep. But you crawl before you walk and you learn exactly. the fundamentals of how you take care of people and how you, you know, run exactly. a restaurant, manage a restaurant. Yeah, of course. Correct. Correct. Because um, the, the fundamentals are still the same. Absolutely. So, so I, I'd express some interest in, in trying to perhaps go to one of the other restaurants in the group, um, and was being considered. But at that time where you and I were together, yeah. that opportunity presented itself. Um, so Big opening, uh, high stakes, uh, had never been involved with an opening before. Uh, it was definitely a step in the right direction as far as what I was looking for at the time. Um, I had worked in a lot of Italian restaurants, so I had um, a pretty decent uh, foundation, Italian food and, and wine and, and spirits. Um, but this was definitely going to be that that big push, that, that challenge. And oh boy, was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it certainly was a challenge. It was trial by fire. Um, uh, the best of times, the worst of times. Um, it was uh, a really exciting project to be a part of. Um, it was very, very stressful because of all the attention that was put on um, that was put on the place, but it really uh, brought the team uh, together in spots. Uh, certainly, uh, that's where David and I uh, got to know each other, became friends. Uh, we drank uh, quite a bit uh, late nights um, after very stressful services. Uh, we were there over the World Cup, and we would get up early morning. It was when it was in South Africa. Yeah. We would get up and, uh, and go do that uh, for a couple of hours and then go home and sleep and then return to the restaurant later <laughs> for an appropriate shift. Um, it was... Uh, we we was had a really... We had a really good time, and it was really cool watching uh, kind of David um, do his thing there uh, because everybody 
adored working with him and for him. Um, already uh, on this, hopefully you're you're feeling uh, the the humility, kind of the that humbleness, that that grace that he brings to the table. Um, that's not manufactured. That's baked into who he is. Um, I think it makes him um, a particularly good manager because again, uh, there's nothing that he's asking anyone to do that he's not done himself or he's not willing to do. Um, there's very few occasions where I've seen him say, "Can you go do that?" It's, "Can you help me do this?" And and he's he's always kind of rolled up his sleeves and and gotten the job done. Uh, that was obvious uh, even there watching him, you know, just kind of learn the ropes, you know, put management, put his management uh, skills, you know, into this new vessel of, of fine dining. Um, it, it was really cool to watch him, you know, you know, come into it there. And now seeing where he's come just in the last 10, 12 years, it's, uh, it's been, it's been really cool, which is why I've wanted to sit down with him and, uh, and bring him to all of you guys and talk about, talk about this stuff. Too kind. <laughs> no, um, Thank you. But let's talk about that because um, how do you view management? How do you because this is a marketing podcast and we talk about how to how to market restaurants. But I think you know it, we talk about Danny Meyer setting the table. You know the the different layers of enlightened hospitality. And the first one is to take care of your staff. Sure. You take care of your staff first. You take care of your staff. They take care of the guests. You know, if you do that, then you're going to be able to take care of the community. You're going to be of the community, not just yeah. in the community. The more you do that, the more successful you are, the more you'll be able to support your suppliers, right? And then if you do that, um, all of that's going to trickle down to um, uh, to the investors. Sure. And you do that over and over and over again. But it really starts with your staff. This is something you're particularly good at. And I want to know how you think about this. Um, because I think this, you know, establishing a culture and, and nurturing staff who want to be there has everything to do uh, with how we create successful restaurants and market our restaurants. Well, I mean, we, we've all worked for different types of managers and you, you learn things along the way, things that you want to emulate and other things that you ultimately like to avoid. Um, I think I've always responded best to those managers where I feel like they are invested in me um, to the point where, you know, they've got your back, they they care about you. They, you know, make the point to get to know you, um, your story. Um, you feel that support from start to finish with the shift. Um, beyond the shift, know that they're, you know, readily available should you need something, whether or not you actually take them up on it, just to have that sense of security. Yeah. And for me, that that is definitely an approach that I feel I've taken, that I uh, aim to take. Um, I don't necessarily think I think about it so much in terms of like forcing it. Uh, I, you know, I do think it kind of comes naturally. I'm interested in people. Um, I do want to, to hear their stories. I want them to, to know that I care about them. Um, and that can manifest itself in, in different ways, you know, whether or not you're really going out of your way to put together the the most ideal schedule for them, um, you know, trying to um, you know, be there uh, as a shoulder to cry and should something be happening in their lives outside of work. Um, but I know, for example, when I've started uh, new jobs, you know, a lot of the times you're thrust into this environment where there's so many people you have to get to know and it can it can be a situation where you're kind of doing the bare minimum, just like learning their names and their position, <laughs> right. and um, and that's essentially it. And it can go from day one, or week one, month one, having mastered everyone's names to you know, month six, and nothing has really built any further. Um, it, it could be that same kind of empty relationship. Now, I I tend to like know people's stories before I even know their names. 
Okay, so it's like, like eventually I'll know your name, but but I actually know like who you are. I have a sense of your your core being, um, and I feel like that connection is is more meaningful than maybe me having asked them their name yeah. two months down the road because it can be forgiven a little bit more. So then let, let's talk about how that um, relates to hiring and staffing, like how sure. you put together a team, you know, because again, it all goes back to, um, you know, to creating a place where people want to be. Yeah. So how do you find the people that you want to surround yourself with? And, and how can you tell that this is going to be a place um, that, that's going to work with them? You know, how, how do you how do you begin that? Yeah, I mean, that, that interview process can always be very telling. You know, some people, I would say I fall into this camp where it takes me a little bit of time and, and some reps with certain individuals to show my you know, core being, like who I actually am before I open up and, and get comfortable. Um, so despite that, uh, in an interview, whether someone's nervous or shy, there are certain tells. Um, and and you know, the resume tells one part of the story, Obviously, you know, if there are certain restaurants on there, certain uh, numbers of years spent, you know, that can bode well. Um, but what feeling are you left with after that exchange or during that exchange? Um, you know, is there a sense of warmth? Um, what are they exuding? And for me, um, during that interview process, I, I want to feel like I'm connecting with someone that I would want to spend time with outside of a restaurant. You know, pick an environment, pick a venue. It almost doesn't matter. But is this someone I genuinely want to spend quality time with? And if the, the answer to that question is yes, and you have any confidence in their ability or your own ability to work with perhaps someone who's less skilled on the surface but might be a diamond in the rough, then that usually for me is a worthwhile gamble. Um, so it starts there with you know vetting to the best of your ability, trying to judge someone's character, um, and then you get started. And there's nothing saying that you have to be wedded forever. Okay, so you know you can learn lessons very early on. You can learn them months in. You can learn them a year in. Sooner the better, obviously. Um, but you. you interview and you hire with the the best uh, intentions um but the the proof is ultimately in the pudding you know did they pull the wool over your eyes during the interview and suddenly you've got a different beast on your hands uh during service uh they're nasty with their teammates or the clientele or they're not doing what's expected of them to earn their keep and pull their weight to make sure that the the team is continuing to be able to forge ahead and, and, and do their very best um so i think you know Having the standards, um, communicating those clearly to your team, and holding people accountable is is of the utmost importance because um, that that's when you can actually determine whether or not you know, this is this is the right member of your team. So then, tell me about that. So how do you communicate that? Uh, because I think this is something that a lot of uh, operators don't think of, but. You know, how do you identify, you know, what it is you're building, right? And, and say, we're building this kind of restaurant. This is the kind of experience we're crafting. How do you identify that and then communicate that, you know, wrapped up in the expectations? How do you make sure that they know this is what kind of place we're creating? This is what's expected of you to help create that. Do you give thought to that? Like, how do you how do you instill that sense into the a new employee when they're sure. early on? Yeah, I mean, some of it, a lot of it lives on paper and it can't begin and end there. Um, you know, so you can have your handbook, you can have your steps of service, you can put all these documents in front of someone, expecting for them to read it, 
good luck. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, that, that's uh, not always always the case. But you know, you're you're doing your due diligence. You're putting these things in front of them. But you have your lineups. You have your one-on-one meetings. Um, you have that shoulder-to-shoulder time on the sho- on the shoulders of the of the night where you're maybe not as busy. Yeah. And, and that's when I'm talking about like getting to to know someone or have a conversation that might be a little bit more pointed without making them feel uncomfortable or, or, or targeted. But using your time wisely to actually like connect with your staff um, because. Again, if you leave it to the the handbook, if you leave it to a lineup where you're looking at a, an ocean of staff and half of them are asleep or they're thinking about something else or you know they're texting, you know, I mean, this is the reality of the situation. This is the reality. Um, you know, you're casting this wide net. You're hoping a lot of it lands uh, on the team or at least certain individuals, but that one-on-one time is is critical. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it goes back to this idea again, Danny Meyer, this constant gentle pressure. It's, you know, establishing you know, um, you know, clear vision for where you're going, understand, you know, making sure everyone understands their expectations uh, and then keeping on them and keeping on them, whether that's just keeping in front of them and, you know, making sure they know that you care about them. I care about you. I care about you over and over or, you know, outlining, you know, what's expected of them over and over and over again. Do you do you still think about that all these years later after your time with uh, Union Square Hospitality? Absolutely. A lot of those principles are timeless. They apply then, they apply now, and they'll uh, they'll be relevant in the future. Um, yeah, I, I, in terms of the the one on one, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of management teams fall into this trap where, like, one individual does something, and then suddenly this becomes the focus of lineup for the next week or two. Yet that one individual never got that one on one time. So suddenly, like, you know. 90% of the team that's not guilty of this infraction they're looking around like what the hell is David talking about no it's like sure there can be a lesson learned for the the greater good but unless you're really calling attention to the specific situation with that individual who's guilty of it you're not going to get anywhere yeah all you're doing is creating awkwardness for the team and resentment and you know fill in, fill in the come up with any number of examples where you know there's a a situation that is being raised and that uh, I've been in I've been in these lineups um, where the team's like just kind of looking around at each other like what the hell are they talking yeah, about yeah and it's like yes yeah. you are confused because it's the person two rows behind you who really needs to hear this but no one has the backbone to get to that person specifically and people don't do that right so people don't have the backbone like yeah. you said because they don't want to make waves they're afraid of confrontation but I think what you're saying is building uh, you know by building that relationship early and 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 strongly right you may not know sure. their name but you know their story yeah. you understand who they are at a, at a kind of a core level getting to that as quickly as you can you know is building rapport so that you can have those uh difficult conversations um, establish some not, credibility yeah and not have it be a, a confrontation necessarily exactly it's a, it's a matter of you saying you know look i know you you know me yeah. L- let's talk about this Correct. yeah i think you know and this has everything to do you know with marketing and i've said this before on the show i'll say it again is that you know it's great to have things on paper right yeah. the chef knows what their food is all about the the director of operations the general manager you know the owner that we, we know what we're creating but then it's your job to uh, to pass that along to the staff whose job it is to execute that vision yeah. because they're going to come in contact with many more guests than you could ever possibly uh, contact Correct. in a, in a given in a given week right so it's their job you are um, you are relying on them 
to execute the vision as it has been established, right? Um, and I think that's why uh, that's why this is so important. Um, I, I want to pivot a little bit sure. to talk about Altamorea uh, just a little bit because um, you had the great fortune of working with them for a long time yeah. in a bunch of different properties. And I want to know, I guess from your perspective, you know, how that company thinks about properties and differentiation and how they position different restaurants in the market. Because not only do they have a, a, a variety of different uh, restaurants, but there are different levels. Mm-hmm. Some are fine dining, some are more, you know, casual uh, dining. Um, and, and they're all pretty successful. Sure. Um, not, not that they've had, you know, all home runs. They've certainly uh, struggled in spots, but they've had more successes um, then they have um, then they have failures. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like how they think or how that company approached a new concept, how you you know establish a vision for it and then and then execute on that? Yeah. Um, so I mean, if we're talking about AMG, I guess we can start with Maria, which is where I started. Um, so you know Michael White, celebrated chef, rightfully so. Uh, I mean, he lived in Italy for damn near a decade. Yeah. Speaks the language. Wife is Italian. Watches Italian news at home. He is all things Italian at this point. Happens to be from Wisconsin and looks <laughs> like he played in the NFL. Uh, but but he's otherwise uh, pretty much Italian uh, as far as as far as I'm concerned. And for um, those who don't know, uh, Chef Michael White, who aren't uh, New Yorkers necessarily, um, he uh, kind of the crown jewel of his of his empire of the Alta Morea restaurant group is Morea, the, the restaurant David's talking about. It's an Italian seafood place on Central Park South. It's literally right across the street uh, from Central Park. Uh, it's high-end. It's very expensive. It's uh, very popular. It's been successful for a long time now. And uh, and so that's where David started his journey with them. So I just want to give some context. Yeah. So so when I started there, there was Osteria Marini down in Soho, and there was iFiori, and they had both recently opened. Um, both still exist, and Marini has now become this really successful brand with properties. I think they just opened one in Riyadh, um, but they've got Miami and uh, DC, they've got New Jersey, Long Island, uh, yeah. and I'm sure many, many more to come. Um, you know, Maria speaks for itself, and then iFiori is this like hotel brand. Um, you know, Maria gets all the accolades. Um, iFiori, has always had the most involved service, um, captain system, uh, really elegant environment spaced out tables. I mean, it's um, hotel real estate, so you can space things out a a little bit more. Um, So those were the three restaurants when I started. And I would say by year two, uh, when they approached me with this opportunity to open up a, a restaurant on the Upper East Side as the opening GM, that's when the group started to go in this like rapid expansion mode where it was multiple properties in New York, properties overseas. Uh, and this is all within like an 18 month period where you've got like four new restaurants in, in New York. I think DC was happening at the time. And uh, there was a property in London, which I was fortunate to be able to help open and also in Istanbul. And they sent me there as well. But in terms of uh, answering your question, you know, there are hits, there are misses. And I can just speak to, to the Upper East Side property, which ultimately found its success, um, but there were some lessons learned right out of the gate. Um, a lot of our clientele at Maria, uh, affluent, um, many of whom, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, um, made it seem as if putting like a Maria 2.0 in their backyard was exactly what they needed. Um, and that was a lesson, so that's, that was 
somewhat of the approach um, with, with what we open on the Upper East Side, only to learn that they want to go to Morea, but if they're staying in their own backyard, not that's not what they want. Or at least you can't fill a restaurant of that size with Upper East Siders uh, in terms of like that number of seats and the demand matching it. Maybe if it were yep. a 50-seat restaurant, it would have would have worked. But they wanted basically that successful Marini property in Soho, something of that ilk. That's really more in keeping with what they wanted. That's now, what the neighborhood wanted. That's mean, what right? they wanted, and with so, a little bit more refinement. Yeah, okay. So uh, so Marini, again, is the more casual concept in the group at the time. Yeah. Um, Morea is the high-end, expensive, you know, michelin star property. Sure. And so there was a miscalculation there on the part of the company. They said, oh, our guests are telling us that they want a high-end place in their backyard, but over the course of six months, a year, whatever that time horizon sure. was, you discovered that no, actually what they really wanted was something. Something that fell in between. Yeah. You know, I think a Marini, Osteria Marini um, proper would have worked perfectly well. I think what we ultimately landed on was successful, but it was not Maria 2.0. Um, that, that's just not what they were willing to sign up for. And they would happily have their chauffeur or grab a cab to get there. To get there, if yeah. They, if they wanted Maria. Um, so we, we definitely pivoted. Um, we relaxed the menu, the approach. Um, you know, we were Frenching bread tables. We went with bread baskets. Um, Tablecloths were ultimately abandoned. Um, you know, the multi-layered wine team ultimately was boiled down to one sommelier. People were wearing more hats, fewer yep. bodies on the floor, uh, menu prices, the, the check average needed to go down, um, but ultimately the, the number of covers went up. So you know, lower check average, more covers, you're better off, payroll, the, the, the labor model uh, was adjusted. So a lot of things were tweaked to, to find that right balance. Um, but there were some lessons learned. So, so talk to me about this because I want to get into the nitty gritty. That's the beauty of this podcast is that the only people listening are restaurant people, sure, chefs, operators, managers, marketers. They know the nitty gritty and they want the nitty gritty. Um, so I want to understand how that process went um, because I'm sure it was a lot harder than you've just described. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was a lot more stressful sure. than you've just described because there's big money on the line. Yep. There's a lot at stake. Mm -hmm. um, can you, if you can think back to that point, can yeah. you walk us through what was the point where you realized, you know, you have a vision, you open it with one thing in mind because you think you're filling a need, yeah. right? I mean, this is marketing, right? You yeah. think, you know, what is the need here to be filled? We're going to, we're going to provide that. Um, when did you guys start realizing that that's not, that wasn't the reality? That's not actually what people wanted. Was it pretty early on? Was it three months, six months? I'd say second quarter of our operation. So four okay. to six months. Sorry, there wasn't a drastic downturn, um, but things were not trending in the direction that they needed to in terms of ultimate longevity. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, there was a lot of guest feedback, um, not critical of, of what was on the plate um, or the service itself. Okay, not critical of the quality of the ingredients on the plate, but in terms of what the menu concept was, we were hearing loud and clear it needed to be simplified. So I think more Italian-American as opposed to, you know, Ifiori, Morea, um, upscale Italian, modern Italian. So really yeah. needed to get back to the basics a little bit. Um, and the there was a little bit of sticker shock in terms of, you know, BTG prices cocktail prices um again if it were a 50 seat restaurant i think it would have been fine 
but it was a big restaurant. It's a big space there, yeah. And it's a it's a volume game. And that space has been challenged for 20 years ever since, you know, all, all the different uh, people who have inhabited that space because it is big. It's it's grand even yeah. though it's in a it's in a neighborhood, it's in a re- residential area. Um Unfortunately, okay. it's no moss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a high rise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, but I mean, it, but it's str- that space struggled for for a very long time. Yeah, um, under all the different you know sure. owners that that had um that had held it. Okay, so like second quarter, four to six months, you're you're hearing this kind of feedback either uh, explicitly people are telling you or just in in what you're picking up their cues, their Q, um. You know, conversations with with trusted guests, reviews. Um, right. You're 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 not blind or deaf to the specific criticism. And it doesn't mean that you know one day you you know take menu number one and, and tear it all up and and introduce menu number two. It was in stages. So okay, if they're saying that they want, I don't know. Uh, Veal Parmigiano, and I don't think we ever had that. But no. <laughs> but if that's what they if that's what we're hearing they want, then let's let's try it on for size. Let's let's see if the demand is actually for that. And so you start to look at your menu mix, and you start to introduce things that you think that you're that you're being told are in demand. And sure enough, you know whether it's a simply grilled fish as opposed to you know a more composed bronzino with a bunch of tweezer action. Um, the proof was again in the in the pudding. You start to see the uh, guest tendencies skew in, in one direction. Yeah. And so, was this a concerted effort? I mean, was there like you sat down with you know the chef, the leadership above you, the you know your team to to make these choices deliberately, or was it all just changing? Because you, you said there were a lot of changes, right? You scaled down U- ultimately. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you scaled down the wine staff. You got rid of the tablecloths. You you know uh, redeveloped the menu. There were all these changes you outlined yeah. just a few minutes ago. Um, did they all happen at once or yeah. was it slow in, in, in phases? So really starting with the, the menu and the price point while also so yeah, menu and just in terms of like your, your standard menu that you would encounter for, for lunch or brunch or, or dinner, like tweaking that slowly one two dishes at a time over the course of weeks, months. Um, so you can have some real data to analyze yep. and assess if it's, if it's a, you know, drastic change, then now you're just dealing with a completely new landscape and it's, it's hard to compare and contrast. Right. Um, so, so starting there and then realizing, yeah, this, this seems to be what they want, a simplified uh, approach. Um, and then taking it one step further, like, okay, if, if we're going to reduce our menu prices to this point in the check average, what can, I mean, honestly, like, what can we afford? Do we, can we continue to pay this linen bill each week? Do they actually need the linen? Is it, right. is that in keeping with everything else that we're, that's now been established? So, um, yeah, looking at the costs, determining what you can afford, determining what makes sense. And if something didn't make sense and it was also expensive, then that's an, that's a no brainer. That's an easy answer. Yep. Like, let's, let's, yep. Let's move away from that. This is, you know, restaurants are like athletes. Um, I think oftentimes when you see a really great athlete, there aren't a lot of athletes who can tell you what makes them so good, right? Like it's a rare thing that, uh, that, a, that, a, that a great, you know, elite athlete um, can articulate, you know, why they're so good at what they do. They're, they just have an innate ability and they just train and they focus. That's why we value, you know, great baseball managers, right? Like why oftentimes catchers make the best 
uh, managers because they've been watching the whole game. Yeah. They literally touch the ball more than anyone else in the game. They watch how the pieces, how the players move when uh, when a ball is hit here or there or whatever. They're they're watching the base runners and the batter and the pitcher and the fielders. Um, they get a full scope of the game. And I bring this up to say that oftentimes when we have a hit restaurant, mm -hmm. it's difficult to understand why it's a hit, sure. why it's so beloved, why it's working. Um, and uh, easier sometimes to uh, to learn from the the failures, to learn from the things um, that, that weren't working because you have to be then deliberate mm -hmm. about the changes you make to try to make it great. And when it didn't work and then you get it to work, you can do what we're doing now, which is you can... Um, you can uh, look at all the little things you you did along the way, um, whether it was over the course of time. You say, well, we did this, 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 this. Oh, great. Yep. Well, that's how we went from point A to point B, from a failure to a success. Um, I think not enough is, uh, we don't talk enough about evolution yeah. in restaurants sure. um, and certainly here in New York City we've made a career here in New York City um, there is a lot of pressure put on the opening yeah. uh, because we get reviewed within our first I'll say three to six months yeah. And that's it, right? Like you've got to have an established vision. Like the food's got to be what it's going to be forever and the dining room and this and that and like all of that. And, um, and we put this pressure on ourselves rather than letting the restaurant evolve mm -hmm. and, and, and find itself and discover, you know, how it can best serve uh, the people. I don't know how to fix that in New York City, but I think in much of the rest of the world, this is something that is possible. And um, I, lo I love that we're having this conversation about um, taking a failure and making it successful. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the, the other thing that's worth noting, um, you know, you're on the Upper East Side. So short of maybe someone going up to visit a museum and maybe swing by for, for lunch, you don't have a lot of tourists necessarily just flocking to the Upper East Side. Some, but not there's not the same demand there as there might be for a restaurant in Midtown, yep. which means you, you better embrace that neighborhood. You better ingratiate yourself with the neighborhood and, and offer something that's attractive. Yeah. And, you know, a, a high price point is at odds with that. So bring that price point down while also making a concerted effort to um, you know, reach out to the neighborhood, starting very locally and then branching out and then perhaps, not perhaps, but extending offers. Like we, we took a page out of the downtown of Surya Marini book that was the Monday night $10 pasta. So suddenly you're 20 something living on York. That's your excuse to come to- I was to that at one point. Yeah, but that's, that's <laughs> your excuse to come to Marini. And if you get there and you realize like the staff is actually uh, on point and caring and, and interested in you and the ambiance, is really comfortable and it's a good place to have a $10 pasta and $12 cocktail. And oh, guess what? They do brunch. Um, maybe I can come and have a boozy brunch on yeah. Sunday or actually it's pretty elegant. My mom and dad are coming in town in a month and uh, you know, I want to stay local and this could, you know, check off that box as well. So um, just giving yourself more opportunities for exposure, but really tapping into that neighborhood became so key. Did you think about this? Um, and I'm talking about you like in your career, because now we're talking about marketing, right? Marketing sure. is, um, I believe it's about identifying an audience that needs to be served. Yeah. Um, and then and serving them, you know, solving a problem that, that they have. But it all starts with. Uh, the customer. It all starts with the guest. And luckily, we're in the service industry, and so uh, we take care of guests for a living. But now what you're talking about is thinking, who has a problem? Like, who needs something in this neighborhood, and how can we provide that, right? You said the 20-something who lives over on York. When I first moved to New York City, I lived at 82nd and uh, between York and East End. Sure. The only 
Avenue further <laughs> east than York is East End Avenue. I could not get further away from civilization uh, <laughs> than, than the place where we lived. Now, it was great. It was quiet. It was what we could afford. The neighborhood was safe. All of that. Uh, but we were way over there. We had no money. We were in a little shoebox uh, of an apartment. And um, and so you're talking about catering to that audience. So in the beginning, that was not the audience that was on your mind. You said, okay, we're going to take care of the affluent Upper East Siders, the, the jet setters, the trendsetters, the people who come to Morea and spend you know big money for dinner there. Uh, they're going to really appreciate that you know we put one of these in their backyard so they can spend that kind of money here you discovered that's not with where they wanted to spend that kind of money in their neighborhood yeah. they wanted a different kind of experience so you're getting a better vision of who your guest is and what they need mm-hmm. in that neighborhood okay so you you shape it for there and then you started taking a page from uh, marini downtown and you start making these you know these affordable options yeah. because there's another audience there's another persona mm-hmm. in the neighborhood yeah. um, that you could attract how did those jive right because somebody who's going to come in and spend a hundred dollars a head versus somebody who's going to come in and spend twenty dollars a head or thirty dollars a head those are how did you jive them together yeah i mean honestly i would say a lot of them were ships in the night so you've got the one person coming in at seven o'clock six thirty to seven thirty let's say um having that one experience which is i guess kind of more in keeping with what we had initially set out to do right and then that table is turning at a later hour for guests who are compelled to come in, incentivized to come in to enjoy a deal. And what started off as a Monday special ended up being Monday through Wednesday. And we were happy to have them because there were still enough guests spending, having the full experience coming in at eight o'clock to 8.30 where the room was populated with enough of those guests. But then the the room was filled in with others who were there for a deal. Um, so, So, the beauty of it was the table is probably just going to sit there vacant anyway. Yeah. Um, you're putting something in place where you know, it's pasta and you can cover your costs and you can come up with a couple of cocktails where, you know, are you, do you have huge margins? No. Um, but are you also like creating an environment that is not so dull at yeah. nine o'clock, which I have always found has tremendous value um, for those guests who might want eight but they settle for 8.30 and maybe next time they'll settle for nine because it's not a boring environment. Yeah. So creating a scene of sorts yeah. that you're paying for to a certain degree. Um, but in terms of um, like the, the two different types of, of guests um, like coinciding uh, or, or cohabitating a space, yeah. um, it really never was an issue. Um, to be honest with you, it's an interesting lesson, and I don't know the, I don't know the takeaway. But I guess for all the listeners, I would just say, give some thought to that because um, I don't know, I don't know how to implement that. But I think there's a there's an important lesson in here that, that so often I think we we think oh this is what we are we really need to hold on to this. Um, but maybe we can expand that vision or or present it in a couple of different ways. We can express it in a couple of different ways um, without ruining uh, the image that the identity that we that we set out from the beginning. Yeah, and I would say if if we were introducing a theme at the end of the night where you know, the lights change dramatically or the sound level of the music is through the roof, then then that would be jarring. But it's it's one person at a table, and suddenly 
the the neighboring table becomes populated by a, a younger couple that's been presented a menu with you know some some different menu prices. Um, the environment remained the same, and I think for those who came in for the deal, um, while the deal was what compelled them, they also had the opportunity to spend on other things. So sometimes they would take advantage of the pasta, but they'd also get like a real entree, yep. which was the beauty of it too. They weren't limited to just get that $10 pasta. So then let's talk about that. I assume that was part of the, um, part of the strategy, right? Yes. It was that, that the servers were trained a certain way to say, Hey, have some things in your back pocket. Make sure you're talking up the menu. Make sure you present other options. Correct. Uh, they think they're coming in for, for one thing, but we can help, uh, you know, embellish that experience and elevate it. Um, in these other key ways. Correct. I mean, I, I would say if you had a couple come in, party of two, the the menu order that I remember distinctly was always like three pastas with no intention to ever finish it. It was just to like cover the table, get $30 of pasta. And we're talking not premium size portions. These are entree right. size portions. So, you know, good luck finishing it, especially if you're ordering other things, which was always the intention. Um, so it'd be three pastas plus plus, you know, maybe an entree to share dessert and however many cocktails down down the line. Um, so the, the check average, which you could have imagined being $10 pasta, let's call it $12, $13 cocktail, $23 a head was north of 50. So, yeah. you know, two people are eating for four people um, or spending for four. If you're just looking at it through this kind of um, deal prism yep um, so so i would say in terms of like these late night specials um don't limit yourself to just that because then that's all you're going to get um use that to help your own cause it's to, a marketing tool yeah you're doing that to attract a certain group a certain demographic a certain audience who uh, might not have otherwise thought to join you yeah. uh, but then you're going to do what you do really well which is create great hospitality and, yeah. and make sure you're offering i mean that's so much of what selling is right yeah. it's just offering things the more you offer um the more people will take you up on the offer and uh i, I think that's a real i mean that is marketing i mean yeah. that that is what it is you identified a new audience uh, with a problem uh, that needed solving, you solve that, uh, and then you showed them what you do really well. You introduced them uh, to who you are and what you do, and like you said earlier, um, maybe they're going to think of you when their parents are coming to town. Maybe they're going to think of you for a boozy brunch yeah. or whatever it is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I just, and the last thing I'll say, I, I just think you have to be careful when suddenly everything is discounted. Yep. Because that's all you're left with. Yep. So. Yep. Uh, price is uh, there's like a famous quote says you know price is the last refuge of a marketer who doesn't know what else to do <laughs> and and it's true if you're just you know if you're just couponing if you're just discounting that you don't know any other way to communicate your value yeah um to uh to your audience and value isn't just um you know price isn't the only lever yeah. um you know uh you know accessibility status um respect belonging they're, sure. they're all really powerful things that you know that are reasons why we go out to eat i mean listen what we're discovering now in the pandemic yeah. um is that you know we, we don't need food we can make food we can get food we can all of that what we need is to like feel like we're you know, we belong to a community. That's yeah. what we're all missing. The idea that we can sit at a bar and be next to other people and, and be part of a room, be be part of kind of a, you know, um, a vibrant ecosystem. Sure. Um, that's what we're all missing. Belonging, community. Yeah. Um, at a high-end restaurant, status, right? I got this reservation. I'm at this table. Like, th these are all real things. You don't you don't go for the food. The food's great. I, I That's great. But yeah. Um, but we go for all these other reasons. And, and, and once you have them, just don't squander the opportunity to keep them, to connect with them. Um, you know, we, 
we work so hard to attract these people to get them in for the first time. It's it's a <laughs> it's pointless to just have yep. them in the one time goodbye and now yeah. let me get back to work trying to find their replacement. No, you have them. Like, what are you going to do to? This is get exactly them to what um, this is exactly what we were talking about before we hit record. Uh, so David and I were sitting here and we were just kind of catching up a little bit before we started recording the podcast and um, and we were talking about this you know, the customer journey, right? So most restaurants know the steps of service, right? right? All the things that happen from the minute a guest walks in uh, to the minute a guest uh, leaves, you know, that we this happens, this happens, this happens, and that's the experience. But when you look at the customer journey, right, like how they discovered you, how they uh, became aware of you, learned more about you, became attracted to you, um, you piqued their interest, they decided to check out your website, they, they decided to book a reservation, you know, then all the way through to, you know, what uh, What are they saying about you when they leave? What are you saying to them after they've gone? How are you thanking them? How are you uh, letting them know the other things that you have going on? Mm-hmm. Um, there are now different tools uh, to be able to do this, but um, but restaurants, I, st- I still think, are really slow to adopt a lot of these tools. But we have to think of that in terms of the entire journey. And like the old uh, cliche goes, it's cheaper to keep a customer yeah. than to go get a new one. Correct. You know, the customer that knows what you do and 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 already likes what you do enough to to join you and pay you money at the end of it. You know, there's a good chance they're going to come back and join you for another experience or a different experience and become an ambassador for you. And I I always talk about uh, ambassadors and evangelists, right? That you want your staff to be ambassadors and you want your guests to be evangelists. You want them to leave and become, but they are, I mean, they do become, you know, ambassadors, you know, to, to, you know, to, to carry on your torch, but but evangelists, you know, I think of like spreading the the word far and wide, right? Like that makes a little bit more sense. Telling, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's but it's I mean it's the same idea. I just I've thought a lot about this yeah, and yeah. how to you know and and how to frame it. But you do you want them to go and and spread the good word uh, about what you're doing and, and what you're building and and why they love it so much and why other people should come be a part of the church. I mean, yeah. and that's what it that's what it is. Yeah, and I, I think evangelist is a good way to. Um, describe it but in terms of the ambassador let's look at your own staff like one of the things that always brings me great joy is when a manager comes to me asking for me to order more business cards because that's telling me you're you're connecting it shouldn't just be like an empty like here's my business card but when done properly when that seed is planted like i'm your go-to you know if you need help in the future with anything you your your friends your family please Business cards are not just for when something goes wrong at the table. Exactly. And so often that's the only time you get to give out a business card when, you know, when the the food comes out overcooked or when the food takes a long time or when, you know, they have a problem with a server. We're so sorry. I want to take care of you in the future. (laughs) But like (laughs) taking care of the people who are having a great time, who are most apt to come back, jam that card in their hands and say, it looks like you're having a great time. I'm so thrilled. My name is Chip. I'd love to take care of you in the future. Let me know whatever you need. And they're going, yeah, I'd love to come back. And now we got an in. They're holding the card going, now I got now I got the inside track. And, and if, if that same guest is willing to give you his or her card, then that's your opportunity. Email right away within 24 hours. Email this guest. Now you've kind of forced the connection upon them, making it, one, establishing the fact that you're sincere, but also making it easy for them to just reach out to you at any stage thereafter. So 
Um, yeah, I would say the the business card game, um, you know, sommeliers, what an opportunity. You know, you're, you're having these lengthy conversations. Yeah. You're really becoming invested in the, the guest experience. You're getting to know their interests. Uh, you're guiding them over the course of this two, three-hour journey. And what, you're not going to give them your business card? You're, yeah. you're not going to say, let's do this again. Like, I'm your go-to. If you think you want to have a fun wine dinner, like, remember me. Yeah. It's, you know. At a nice restaurant here in, in New York City, right? An appetizer is $20, an entree is $30, and a bottle of wine is, let's say, $75, sure. right? Yeah. It is equal or greater than what they're spending on their food. It's a it's a key way to make money, to, you know, um, to pad the check average, to make the restaurant more profitable, and, by the way, to make for a better guest experience because yeah. wine is delicious, wine makes the food better. Yeah. Um, there's always something more to learn. There's always something new to discover, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, what an you can, opportunity. You can try to sell someone $10, $30 pastas. Good luck. They're yeah. going to be pretty damn full. Or a $300 <laughs> bottle of wine. I mean, like, take <laughs> take your pick. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now I want to take all of this, and I want to... Um, uh, this is such a great conversation. I'm so glad uh, we talked about it. Um, I want to take all of this and uh, pivot now again um, to the, the last topic I want to talk about is really Portale. Sure. Um, that restaurant. So, again, uh, Chef Alfred Portale was at uh, Gotham Bar and Grill for 35, 36 years. Um, he is much heralded. He's got a James Beard Award, a whole bunch of stars uh, from the New York Times. Uh, Gotham has a Michelin star for you know many, many years running. And he went to open his own restaurant um, over in Chelsea, kind of right between Chelsea and Flatiron. Uh, and uh, it bears his name, Portale, and they open in the fall, and you are tapped uh, to open it as uh, kind of the head of operations, to, to man the, the front of the house and to execute that. Talk to me about um, what that restaurant was supposed to be. You know, what, what was the vision behind it? Um, what, why did the, that neighborhood need it? And, and then how did you help execute on that? Sure. Um, so the the vision was, and I'd say still is, to be this upscale, casual Italian restaurant where everything on the plate and in the glass is thoughtful, beautiful, well-balanced, delicious, but presented in a fashion, whether it's, you know, the way we set the room, the way we dress as a service team, the way we carry ourselves with a bit of a casual air to it. So yep, it's laid back. It's comfortable comfortable that's 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 the goal so taking alfred's pedigree um you know the talent that his team has in the back of the house um my experience the service team that uh, i've hired and their uh experience and and tremendous training um applying that in a more relaxed fashion so you know, i can use an example um like ifure which i had mentioned earlier I would say of all the AMG restaurants, the most refined service, um, a lot of it is just like very synchronized to the point where, you know, it, I wouldn't say like per se or something along those lines where it's necessarily robotic, um, but you're definitely hitting your, your marks in a very synchronized fashion. Um, we can capture a lot of that with our service style, but just kind of like rounding the the edges. Yeah. So, you know, rather than you and I get reach the table, stop at one, position one, you're at three, we're looking at each other to drop and then move around the table. We're leaving the kitchen knowing where we're going. We're arriving around the same time. 
delivering that first play and then moving more rhythmically. Um, so like that is a small little example of how our approach and style kind of manifests no, that's, and that's that's itself what, across yeah, the board. That's what I want to know because uh, it's only enough to write down in the uh, in the manual saying this is what we want to accomplish, mm-hmm. but then executing that, right? Like like how do we accomplish that, right? If we want it to be comfortable how do we make sure the space is comfortable, right? Like like the music, the lighting, sure. the walls, like all of that's really comfortable. Yeah. Um, and the way we present the dishes, the way we drop dishes is a, is a way we can illustrate that Correct. to our guests. Correct, correct. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you're taken into a room with a play. I don't know what the playlist was at Gotham. I'm sure more classic in terms yeah, it was, of, that know, would jazz. be my, yep. yeah. Yep. Um, ours is more pop and um just a little bit louder a little bit more of a beat and uh, yeah there's energy in the room there's um uh you know the street art (laughs) framed and put on the street art no tablecloths staff is dressed down a little bit Uh, we've got cool aprons that we we've bought and just black dress shirts and jeans and black kicks and and you know so you, you walk in and suddenly it doesn't feel like fine dining um but then you're you know, greeted by a server who's got that training, um, whether it's before joining our team or, you know, having a lot of that training reinforced um, with a level of professionalism and, and seriousness, but also with like a casual kind of fun yep. air where you don't have to look over your shoulder to you know, share a joke. It should yep. just kind of come naturally. Scripts provided, but but not this dogmatic uh, approach where you know you have to read it to a T. It's more kind of guidelines, like um, like understand that you should be working within this realm without having to kind of toe the line specifically. Yep. So you guys opened in the fall and you got a lot of accolades. Great review in the New York Times. Really hit your stride. Yep. We went there to dine in January of 2020. It was one of our last meals out. It was a great meal. Uh, and very comfortable, really, really relaxed, and um, like an energetic dining room. Just the kind of place you want to you want to be. You want to you want to spend some time there. Um, and that was obvious with the you know the other people who were dining there. Uh, but then uh, the pandemic comes, and uh, the pandemic had other plans for you guys. I mean, really stopped that momentum. Um, you know, you guys were building quite momentum. Uh, at that point and really stopped it in its tracks and you guys shut down for for many many months yeah really really tough time i mean what a what a year for everyone um we're not unique um i can look at it from my vantage point and it's not been fun um but we're we're not alone in this um what i will say is that we opened in november of 2019 we had just gotten through a review period so we were up and running operating for four months exactly before we were forced to shut down um, we, I remember, um, sitting in the private dining room with my management team that last day before we kind of locked the doors, fully convinced, all right, guys, see you in two weeks. Yeah. Not realizing five months would transpire before we would, uh, get the, the band back together again. So it was a solid five month chunk. We could have opened a, a touch earlier in terms of the city allowing it. Um, but there are, there are a lot of things to figure out. What's your, what's your rent situation? You know, can you afford to open? Do we have a future in this space? So, you know, survival mode, uh, kicked in early on and and we're, we're still in that survival mode. So I want to talk a little bit about this because, uh, you know, listen, everyone's sick of the pandemic. I'm sick of talking about it. Everyone's sick of hearing it about uh, hearing about it. But, um, what I'm interested in now and the the conversation I keep having is what did you learn through the pandemic? You know, what pivots did you make 
um, that are going to uh, come with you into the new normal, right? Like, what did you learn about yourself and your business? Um, we were talking again before we turned on the microphone about the importance of diversifying revenue streams, right? This is a lesson that I think a lot of restaurants learn. They said, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, I made money one way. When people mm-hmm. came in, they ate my food, they paid me, I, sure. made, I made my living. Um, and everybody had to pivot because when indoor dining was shut down, you had to do something, right? Mm-hmm. So you had to do, um, you had to do uh, delivery, you had to do pickup, you had to do at-home meal kits, yeah. you had to do Zoom classes, you had to start selling retail, you know, jarring, sure. whatever. Like everybody figured out something uh, else to do. And I wanna know what you did and what you're gonna hold on to then moving forward. You know, what lessons did that teach you uh, that you think are worth holding on to? Yeah, so it's it's funny with like we can start with delivery and and takeout. Uh, so I I worked at fine dining restaurants in AMG where we had actually uh, implement incorporated that element. Um, even at Ifiori with the Michelin star, we introduced delivery takeout. Um, so it wasn't foreign to me, and the, the idea of doing it at Portali, which is upscale, casual. Um, seem like it was inevitable. Um, you're not going to do it during the review period. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't want to you know, undermine your, your own credibility at that stage. But um, well, it yeah. was a different world. <laughs> no, but I, but even so, I, I did. You know, I, was, I remember seeing the, the restaurant for the first time and there's this first floor. Uh, it's two floors, first floor, second floor. There is no sub cellar. Um, first floor, main dining room, bar, uh, the kitchen, uh, dish. Second floor, you've got a prep kitchen, you've got a PDR, you've got the offices, you've got the, the restrooms. But I saw the second floor uh, prep kitchen that I knew was going to sit vacant at night, excluding you know, maybe a, a PDR or two that would warrant or demand um, staffing it up. Yeah. But I still see this amazing kind of commissary opportunity of sorts there, um, if and when. Um, but delivery takeout was something I, I knew would happen, and it was just kind of forced upon us as far as like doing it sooner rather than later. Yeah, um, you oh, saw every restaurant in the city doing it. Yeah, restaurants you would never imagine. Yeah, <laughs> doing it or, or doing it and doing it well. Um, you know, it's it's tricky in that it's oversaturated at this point. Yeah, you know when Maria and some of the restaurants of, of that ilk did it early on, it's like wow, you can have this yeah. delivered. Um, but everyone's doing it now, so yeah. it's 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 a tough it's a tough landscape. So but that, but one more necessary revenue stream, and if you're staffed and ready, you, you better utilize it. Yeah. So okay. So then, is that something you guys are going to continue absolutely doing? Yeah. We'll we'll do you know the standard uh, delivery takeout channels, um, the meal kits that I guess I can give a shout out to Bento Box because I've heard you do that before. We use their yeah. we use their um, platform for our um, delivery uh, takeout of bento of uh, sorry of um, of meal kits um, currently it's structured for a friday night pickup delivery very limited window 2 hours and we're we're doing that because it's a skeleton crew the beauty of doing it in that fashion is you see it coming you order accordingly and there is no waste yeah yeah um, I, I love bento box because of the solutions they provide i'm i've been uh, very, very outspoken about that. Yeah. But that is, it's a, it's a kind of limiting approach in that if you want that, you have to, you know, you can you only get it between four it, and yeah. six, you have to plan for it, blah, blah, blah. Um, now if we go in a pasta direction and a lot of restaurants are doing this and doing it well, we're using fresh product that we have on hand anyway, you open it up so that a guest can go onto your website and they don't have to order it for a Friday pickup delivery from four to six. You could have it every night you're operating. 
if it's pasta as opposed to you know, something that's a little bit more involved, more labor intensive. So we'll do that, but instead of having like the braised short ribs and you know, roasted chicken and things uh, along those lines, it'll probably just be pasta focus. Uh, some of the things like the short ribs um, that we were doing as far as like a structured meal kit, that's now something you can fold into your delivery channel yep. and you just build something for two. Um, and you're, you're basically just pulling items from your menu anyway that they would probably be able to order individually a la carte through seamless caviar, you, you name it, um, but structuring it as a kind of package. Yep. So that's how we'll get away from it on the one platform, reintroduce it on the other, but also uh, allow for greater ordering flexibility on, on the guests. And um, so takeout and delivery, which was always part of the plan, but the the pandemic just sped up. That will yeah. continue that into will the continue. new normal. And now these pasta kits, pasta kits, that will continue. There are some nationwide opportunities. So uh, early stages of, of establishing that Great. Uh, as well. You know, uh, PDRs, I don't know when those will rebound. Uh, we have a beautiful private dining room space. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to plan ahead right now. Um, businesses aren't, they're working remotely. So if they're not meeting in the office, are they necessarily meeting at a restaurant uh, as a group of 10, 20, 30? Um, not now, and I don't know when. Uh, social gatherings, I think that will start to pick up. But again, the level of concentration isn't what it was, and it will take quite some time to to get there. So then how do you think about that, you know, when we talk about like private dining, for sure. example, right? Because, you know, obviously in New York City, we do a lot of, we do a lot of business dinners, closing mm -hmm. dinners, things like that. Um, if that's not going to happen, if people aren't going to be traveling in from other cities, yeah. if people aren't going to be working in the offices necessarily... Have you started, I assume you have started yeah. thinking about how to pivot that and what people, what kind of people, how to utilize that space moving forward? Yeah, I think there are some chef collaboration dinners that we can start to promote. Again, this this will ultimately boil down to um, guest comfort. Uh, you know, when can you have a table of 10 or 20 strangers shoulder to shoulder? Mm -hmm. uh, enjoying a wine dinner together, uh, again, as, as strangers, or can you utilize the space with individual two tops, four tops? If you're going that route, do you necessarily need to do it there versus on the, the ground level? Um, but there are opportunities to, um, not wait for the demand to come your way, but to come create up. Demand. Yeah. Create demand to, to, to come up with the idea, um, something that should hopefully be attractive and, and dangle it in front of the public and see who will latch on. Which, you know, which is the whole thing. Listen, David's the director of operations for Portali Restaurant, and we've spent a majority of this time talking about marketing, uh, not because that's what I want to talk about, although it's what I do love to talk about, but because um, operations has everything to do with marketing. It is about executing. It is about coming up with things um, to drive demand, uh, to 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 serve the demand, you know, all of that. Um yeah, I guess. Awesome. Yeah, I guess the hardest thing right now is just predicting what guest comfort will be along the way. Um, yep. You know, we just were told that guest uh, guests that restaurants can operate at fifty percent. Every little bit helps. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a restaurant like ours with dividers and six feet separation, you know, thirty-five, fifty percent. You can only do so much. Yeah. But the the, the guests kind of psyche, um, I know, improves um, with every percentage increase and that in and of itself is significant even if i can't get another seat in there yeah because um, yeah. i can say i can tell you the opposite is true right before we had to close down in december even before closing down the writing was on the wall so 
it didn't matter if it was 100% at that point in time, 50, 20, it, guests weren't having it. They had already collectively decided or enough had that they weren't feeling it and didn't want any part of it. Um, so fast forward to where we are now, whether it's 50, we can jump to 75. Again, I can only fit so many tables in with dividers and, and separation, but it helps. Yeah. And you don't have guests looking around the room, counting chairs the same way they did at 25%. Like, is this 25% capacity? Yeah, yeah. They start to just accept it and get comfortable. Um, yeah. What will be helpful is when they allow us to have bar seats again. I, I, I don't know when those come back, you know, the bar seats. I mean, that's, it's such a key part of the energy of any restaurant, certainly in New York city. Yeah. It's, it's a focal point to, to every restaurant here in New York city. Yeah. Even if it were, you know, we have a 15 seat bar. If, if we were limited to six or eight seats, I, I know we would fill them. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's meaningful on that level. That's 12 more covers. And I, yeah, that, yeah, for sure. It's a great, I, bar. I can't place anywhere else. Yeah. Listen, I have loved this conversation, but uh, I'm aware that you're a busy guy and you have to prep uh, to reopen your restaurant uh, next week. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people go learn more about you and all the stuff that you're working on, you got going on? Um, come visit the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're in Chelsea, 126 West 18th Street. So would love to see you there. I can be reached uh, on my Instagram if you would like to try me there, David Schneider NY. Um, again, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Always happy to help. And uh, thank you for listening. Absolutely. We're going to put all of those links and the address and all of that in the show notes. So uh, no need to worry. You'll find them there. David, thank you so much for taking the time and, and talking through all this today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chip. That's it for this week. I hope you got a lot out of this interview. Remember that all of the links are in the show notes. If you like the show, if you find value from the things that we talk about here, there are three ways you can help pay it forward. Number one, spread the word about this podcast. Forward this episode to three people who you think might get something out of it. Number two, go leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, all those reviews really help boost us up in the rankings, please. That's one way you can help me. And then finally, number three, you can go support us on Patreon. Even just $5 gives you access to the new private podcast, The Daily Special. That community is growing, and I'd love to see you over there. That's it. Thank you very much for being here. Stay creative, and I will see you next week. <laughs>